Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast live. enough folks don't flatter me too much um this is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world now i'm joined today to talk about the issue of knife crime and youth violence by councillor paul brandt from liverpool city council hello sam jury dada uh, who's done fantastic research on girls and gangs alison mcgovern mp as always and the legendary connor pope um <laughs> But as always, with these grand occasions, so what was that, Alison? Christmas, New Year, political weekend? Oh, no, uh, there's not going to be a quiz, is there? <laughs> Absolutely not coming. I hate quizzes. You love them, really. And this one is particularly good because it was written by the funniest person in our office, Stefan Rolnick. Where's Stefan? Give him a cheer. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, the funniest person in the office now. That's how low we've sunk. Things have really gone downhill, I have to say. (laughs) So we're going to start with, obviously, what can we talk about but Brexit? No. Yes. Not the B word. Always the B word. So we're going to start with a game that we've called the day after the 31st of October. Picture this. Brexit was going to be great. We're going to be rolling around with nice blue passports and lots of spare insulin while we waited for countries like the USA and Japan to queue up for a great trade deal. And then we realised that we should be taking our time to stockpile toilet paper instead. <laughs> so, this quick fire game, I'm going to read out some quotes and our wonderful guests can guess where they come from a disaster movie or whether they're about Brexit. <laughs> Yay! Extra points if you can name the movie or the person who said the quote. Are we ready? Are you good at films, sure. Sam? No. <laughs> okay, this but is I'm good. very competitive. <laughs> right. More competitive than me and Connor. We'll see. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Ready? Okay, first one. It was me who got us into this mess, and I will get us out of it. Oh. That's that wonderful Prime Minister, isn't it? Or is yeah. that Godzilla? I can't remember now. Yeah, I think that's, that's that def- the Prime Dave, Minister? David Cameron, isn't it? Oh, this is too easy, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that Theresa May? It is Theresa May, oh, trying really? to unite the Conservative Party. Yeah. Well done. There this we is go. actually very easy. Another fine mess she's got us into. <laughs> How about this one? Apologies in advance. Wake the fuck up, people. 
Uh, <laughs> is that a new Lib Dem election leaflet? <laughs> Isn't that the ERG strap line? <laughs> I've, I've no uh, idea that, where that's or from. Is, is that actually a disaster movie? No, it's not. It is actually a quote from our very own David Lammy. <laughs> <laughs> David Lammy, I should have known, actually. Was there some sort of gif? like attached to it? Is it like a Twitter thing? David's very good on the old Twitter gifts. I'm not sure, but I think probably. Right, okay. Um, the next one, what have we done? What have we done? What, <laughs> what have we done? done? <laughs> I have no idea, what have we done? What have we, is that Jaws? <laughs> I don't know, that sounds like Jurassic Park, is very much. What have we done? Yeah, yeah. carry on. What have we done, what have we done? What have we done? Any ideas? I think that's a film. I don't think that's real. It is a yeah. film. Okay. You're getting warmer. Jurassic. What have we... Is Not it? Jurassic Park then? Jurassic Park 2. It requires a level Jurassic of Jurassic Park 2. Would you like a hint? <laughs> Give us a hint. Uh, Anyone in the audience know? What have we done? Star Trek. Is it Star Trek? No, it's um, from one of my favourite periods of history, but not quite historically accurate. Uh, <laughs> not quite historically accurate disaster. Titanic? No, not quite. What? Older, older, more pointy. More pointy? They had pointy things. Yeah, I was going to say, don't you like the ancient Egyptians? Has someone done an, a disaster film about the, the mummy? Yes, the mummy! <laughs> okay, more pointy. Can I just say on... Oh, the... pyramids pointy, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you were like... That was a really good clip, obviously. <laughs> right. Okay. Because um, nothing else in history has been pointy. After that, they <laughs> no. just got the idea, they didn't really like it. It was health and safety, wasn't the, it? There's a bit in um, Jurassic World, not to get stuck on Jurassic Park mm. all day, but uh, where, where they're talking about, you know, they've done dinosaurs again, and, um, and someone goes, this is what progress looks like. And, <laughs> and, and Chris Pratt goes, well, maybe progress should lose for once. Like, Chris That's Pratt, not the line, <laughs> you have not been paying attention recently, no. Chris. <laughs> Uh, the next one, my favourite. Now I'm really a Russian hero. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Oh, um, that's got to be Aaron Banks. Sounds like the disaster movie that is Trump in the US. <laughs> something like that. It's actually a movie. And now I'm really a Russian hero. What's got Russians in it? I'm Rocky. Something James Bondy, I don't know. I only watch like films that are about like real life footballing events. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean football? <laughs> <laughs> About 90 minutes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah no idea. Uh, does anybody know in the audience? Yeah, shout, just shout out. It's it is Armageddon. Armageddon. Okay, I've never Armageddon. Seen that. Who was that at the back? That was Ben, ben Fox. Ben, well ben. done. <laughs> You're better at this than us. <laughs> uh, my actually, my second personal favourite 3,500 personnel at the ready, regulars and reserves. Oh, like that is that Gavin real. Williamson? That was. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> that is the most Tory leadership uh, contest quote yeah, I've yeah. ever heard. I think he'll be resurrecting this one very soon. I mean, this one's easy. We're going to need a bigger boat. Or some boats, <laughs> if you're Dexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any boats. Does anyone have a boat? Yeah, that is Jaws. Yeah, that's Jaws. That's Jaws. If we have to, we can get overnight parts from Japan. It's not about trade deals. If we have to, we can get overnight parts from Japan. Was that, was that Liam Fox? Was that Liam Fox? No. Is it Fast and the Furious? Yes. It is Fast and the Furious. Is it? I think you need to hide your notes. He's very close. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's cheating. Um, which is obviously about a group of men 
pointlessly racing each other and ruining everyone's lives in the process. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no um, analogies there. Though. No analogies at all in this quiz. I don't want to be responsible for a panic. Theresa May. Oh, wasn't, uh, it, wasn't it the, the health secretary at the time who was refusing to disclose the fact that there would be medicine shortages? Brexit. Oh, Matt uh, Hancock. That was incredibly yeah. specific. That must yeah, it was very specific, and I really wish it were oh. right, but the person you're quoting may have been quoting Titanic. Oh. <laughs> that was Titanic. Yeah, which oh is obviously goodness. about a group of people who failed to turn the ship around as it heads for disaster. Oh. <laughs> it seems really unfair that you keep setting out these very specific <laughs> things that happened during Brexit, and I just go, ah, fast and the fury. <laughs> and you're right. I'm pretty sure I'm winning, yeah. Um, we hold all the cards, we can choose the path we want. Oh, yeah. Who said Liam Fox before? That also sounds like a Liam Fox special. Yeah. You're almost We're going to get all the trade deals we want. The Faroe Islands. <laughs> Faroe Islands are a nice place. <laughs> Somebody Warmer. said Michael Gove. Michael Gove, yes, the third of the Tory Brexiteers. <laughs> Honestly. And finally, today, we are one family stepping into the darkness together. <laughs> I really hope that's not a politician. Yeah, oh, a family stepping into the darkness together. Uh, like, is this some sort of space thing, like that march? Independence Day? No, it's not Independence Day. Anyone else? Lost in space. Lost in space? No. Avengers Lost. Endgame. Mm. Uh, All of us have seen the Avengers. Don't spoil it. <laughs> no, that is from Disaster Movie 2012, a film where, in the world as we know it, is ending, lots of bad things are happening, and 99% of the population are suffering while the 1% are left unscathed. Oh, oh. see what she did there? Yeah, Classic Stefan Rolnick analogy there. Thank you very much. And thank you all for participating in this quiz. <laughs> Wait till Christmas now, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, we can, yeah, we can bin the quizzes for now. <laughs> can we give our audience members a round of applause, please? Yeah, I think they now, to segue into something <laughs> a little bit... A little yes, bit more serious. A little bit more serious. I mean, not so that Brexit isn't serious. We all know. And the wonderful Joe Cox. Where's Joe? I think he's at the back somewhere. Be sure to congratulate him as you leave, because it's his last day with us. Oh, um, And he's done a brilliant turn as our organiser for Labour Say, which has done amazing things over the past few months. I'm sure you all agree, you all get his emails. Um, and I will be taking up the mantle and I've got big boots to fill, both physically and metaphorically, so I'll do my best. Um, but to talk about 
something more serious. We're tackling a topic that touches communities and families around the world. Um, we want to talk about youth violence and how we can really put an end to it. Um, so as I said, we're really excited to have Sam and Paul here to talk about it. Um, Sam recently researched the issues of girls and gangs specifically because the roles of women and girls in youth crime are often ignored. Um, and Paul is a cabinet member for Public Health, is that right? Yep. Uh, on Liverpool City Council and has been doing a lot about public health approaches towards tackling youth violence. So, Sam, we've obviously all seen the awful headlines. Um, but before you tell us a little bit about your research, it would be good to know why you chose to research the issue of women and girls and youth violence especially. Yes, yeah, so um, I used to be a councillor in Southwark, which is in central London, for those who don't know. Um, and we had the highest rates of um, kind of stabbing and youth violence uh, in London, parallel with, with Lambeth, you know, got to share that title. Um, but we also had really high rates of domestic abuse. Um, and so I was quite interested to see uh, how we were kind of looking at those issues and rather than saying, actually, this is just an issue about domestic abuse or this is an issue of just a young person involved in crime, why aren't we looking at the whole system? Um, and um, as a counsellor, I set up, um, well, I saw a witness to someone get stabbed um, and uh, after that, I wanted to know what the local authority was doing and what we were doing to kind of tackle the issues around youth violence. So we held a number of different uh, workshops looking at different subjects. So we did one on education, did one on health. Um, and then I did one on girls and gangs and nobody turned up um, because nobody was interested in talking about the issue of girls and gangs. Um, and I went to an, uh, a meeting uh, on safeguarding and a knife crime strategy for the borough. Um, and the chair of safeguarding said, let's be honest, knife crime is an issue that only affects boys. And I just kind of wanted to weep because it's just not true. Even if, you, even if statistically there are less girls being stabbed, there are still girls who are uh, going out with people who are being stabbed, their sisters, they're in school with them. They're still affecting you know, community is affected by this issue. Um, and so I wanted to kind of see what best practice looked like. Um, and that's when I went and uh, applied for the fellowship and then went to America for five weeks. Amazing. So, of course, you've written an extensive report, uh, much of which I've read. It was really good. Uh, and I'll link, it to, link to it rather in the show notes so everyone here can read it and also all our wonderful people who are at home. Um, but it'd be good just to hear briefly what you found or a few highlights. Yeah, I think so. the biggest takeaway was that um, so when I was there, I met with a lot of different agencies. So I met with um, charities who were on the ground working with these young girls. Um, I met with the FBI, which was really cool. Uh, <laughs> I met with you know, Department of Health. I met with all different organisations who all had um, an involvement in these young people's lives at some point. Um, and the biggest thing that kind of took away from it was actually... In, in, in the US, um, in order for someone to get support, um, they often have to go through the criminal justice system, which is not good. Um, and that's because the state just doesn't exist in the same way that it does here. Um, but the police weren't, weren't acknowledging that these girls exist. So they might stop a car which has known gang members in it, and they would acknowledge and write on their notes, you know, gang member, and then just say girlfriend present. And the girlfriend just was present. She wasn't involved, just whatever, kind of just there. Um, and in New Orleans, I met with the police there, and they were quite honest, and they said, actually, this made us really reflect on um, what, we, what our failings are, and that we don't actually see these girls. Um, and the average age for uh, boys on their gang matrix was, um, or ma males, was 17, um, and for females, it was 22. 
And that was such a big difference because they just weren't seeing them until it was too late, until they were involved in such high levels of violence. Um, and so seeing these girls was the most important thing, um, which people weren't doing. Um, having proper support services and acknowledging that they exist. So um, having gender specific services, um, a lot of uh, outreach services, and I think probably the same here, often focus on um, sports as a way to deter people from getting involved in crime. Um, but often they are um, kind of football. It's not that girls don't want to, but by that time, girls don't want to go to a thing that's it's been advertised as a boys-only thing. And so if you're a vulnerable girl going and playing with all these boys who potentially are involved in some of your uh, vulnerability, you know, abusing you or um, you know them because, you know, they're notorious gang members or the brother or someone, you don't necessarily want to participate. Um, and this is an issue that's affecting other things like, you know, we'll talk about, probably go into it later, but people referral units are very heavily male. And so girls are not going to school because they don't want to go into an environment that's just male. Um, and so I think there's an issue there around how we um, provide services for this cohort of young people. And um, Paul, I know you've been a counsellor for, for a while and you've been looking at public health approaches to youth violence. Does what Sam said resonate with your experience? Yeah, I think there's a whole growing understanding of the fact that the sort of the, the classical approach of just, just seeing one group of people, predominantly sort of teenage, young, early 20s males as being the only people who need the public attention is, 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 is being increasingly realised as being wrong. Partly the, um, the issue of girls has been mentioned, but also the increasing involvement of very young, very young people being caught into um, uh, gang and criminal networks as well. And we've seen it um, reach the press um, recently in terms of um, uh, people under the age of criminal responsibility being used uh, in county lines, um, networks, and uh, obviously the knock-on implications in towards, towards um, child exploitation, etc. And so realizing that the uh, just treating one small aspect of crime um, and disorder doesn't actually deal with the problem. Um, and you need a much more expansive whole community, whole family type approach. Um, in, in, in 2002, Glasgow was described by the World Health Organization as the murder capital of the world. And they had at that point a relatively traditional just policing based approach towards um, crime in gangs and they realised that, that the rising numbers of murders and assaults that they were seeing in the city was not being dealt with by their existing procedures and they, they in the UK um, were one of the first cities to really drive ahead with treating crime as a public health issue and realising that an awful lot of the contributing causes um, direct and indirect are matters that really fall within a sort of a, a, a a bit more effectively tackled through a health um, um, focus, and, and they both have... of you have both of you have mentioned. Sorry to interrupt, no. but both of you have mentioned domestic violence yep. alongside this other form of violence. Mm. How much do each of you have found through your experiences that those two things are connected? Mm -hmm. That being a, that the presence of domestic violence in our society might be somehow connected to the rise in youth violence that we've seen. Do you want to go first? Yes. <laughs> um, so um, I actually used to work for a domestic abuse charity and that, when I was applying for this fellowship, was a huge part of it because um, a lot of the research shows that actually young people are the highest risk group for being in an abusive <coughs> relationship um, and yet services are not catering for them at all. Um, and I think when we look at uh, young people who might be involved in crime um, and we look at the wider picture, 
Um, they've often been through some quite traumatic experiences and domestic abuse often plays a big part of that. If you look at the um, kind of rates of domestic abuse amongst the prison population, adult prison population, but also the child, you know, youth offending institutions, it's really, really high. And, you know, I think when we talk about um, why these young people might not be feeling like why these young people are even engaging with things like gangs or criminal activity, um, we're not really necessarily looking at why they might not be feeling safe to go home and why home isn't a kind of a place that they want to be. And actually, for a lot of these young people, it's not. And domestic abuse, I think, plays a huge part of that and actually probably then affects how they are forming their attachments and their relationships, which is problematic. If you don't have a, a place of safety at your home where you feel secure, where you're well-fed, where you can study where you feel that your uh, emotional needs are met, why would you go back there as a place uh, of first resort? And you can find some substitutes from that in sort of um, gang culture. And that's why it's so important that the wraparound services that local authorities tend to provide, whether it's directly um, through youth services uh, or indirectly through schools that provide extended times of opening or a safe space in terms of libraries, et cetera, are really important at creating alternative safe spaces for people. And there's also a real link between transition between um, being a victim and then normalizing violence or seeing it as a normalized association and then being on a conveyor belt to potentially being a perpetrator as well. And breaking that cycle of acceptability is a key part in undermining the sort of the, the cycles that you see within, within individual families and uh, um, tackling people who can be seen as being at risk at a really early age is key to um, making sure that they don't end up in, in, in a bad place in later life. Yeah. Okay, to talk more broadly, part of the reason why I wanted to cover this topic, I think it's really important, is because it seems to have really climbed up the news agenda recently. Mm. And one of the things that I was thinking about, and I'm sure we've all seen it, is in large cities particularly, we're hearing reports of it daily, and it really strikes me that the way that the media portray both the victims and the perpetrators um, is really distinct depending on their background. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, I think lots of it is racially charged. Mm-hmm. Connor, as a journalist, as our resident journalist, um, do you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, one of the really interesting things, I recently moved from politics to working in football journalism. And I find one of the most interesting differences between the two is now the people that I interview are so much younger. (laughs) I'm interviewing people who are 19, 20 years old. um, And it's remarkable. And I think one of the really interesting uh, things that is starting to happen is is if you look at... um, So I live on the the border between... um, uh, Southwark and Lewisham, both in, in South London, both have um, terrible uh, kind of records currently around youth knife violence. Um, but actually, some of the best players, uh, football players, um, emerging at the moment are from South London, specifically from Southwark and Lewisham. If you look, uh, Joe Gomez, who plays for uh, Liverpool, uh, Jaden Sancho, who's currently at Borussia Dortmund and, uh, and played recently for the England team, and uh, Reese Nelson who's on loan from Arsenal in Germany as well and is playing fantastically there. They're all from this kind of quite small area. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is, is actually a new breed of young uh, footballers in England uh, who actually 
are really smart guys and are willing to talk about quite political issues. You've seen Raheem Sterling, uh, who won the Football Writers Award for Player of the Season this year. And I think there was two reasons, other than being a fantastic footballer, why he did win Player of the Season. And one is that actually he wasn't just playing football really well, he was making the game better because he was being such a fantastic advocate for young people in this country in the face of actually what was some pretty terrible racist abuse that was in the crowds but was very much started on the front of some of our national newspapers uh, and they really, really drove it up. And the fact that he has been so fantastic in speaking out around these kind of issues recently is, uh, is I think, phenomenal. But Jaden Sancho, um, who's, from, who's from Southwark, he grew up in um, Kennington, he talks quite openly about um, knife violence and gangs that he saw growing up and quite how bad he thinks his life could have been um, if he hadn't have found this outlet. Now, obviously, we can't hope that every young person involved in, you know, who might get sucked into gangs or, or comes from a, a, a poor background can suddenly become an elite footballer. But my hope would be that actually having these role models who are, um, have such a public figure uh, and will be respected will kind of help in these conversations because certainly I feel now that I speak to more people whose lives have been affected by knife violence working in football than I ever did working in politics. Yeah. And the difference is that these people that I'm speaking to are, you know, millionaires, they're Premier League footballers. Uh, and that seems incredible, but it is true. And so I've, I've not done, you know, outreach work in, in terms of gangs or youth violence. And so I actually don't know how easy is it to get people to open up to you if actually you've not had that experience yourself? I'd be really interested to hear. There's, uh, you, in Liverpool, we've got um, a fantastic charity, and apologies for raising Everton here uh, in front of you. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Everton in the community is, um, is one of our partner organisations for delivering a really innovative project where um, we have a... Uh, a programme of going out to speak in schools, including uh, 10-year-olds in primary school, uh, with um, tailored programmes. The ones for primary schools are, a lot, are obviously a lot more sensitive, but the, um, um, it's a combination of introductions to the issue about gang, uh, gang and particularly carrying knives, um, following a couple of high-profile stabbings that we had in the city centre in Liverpool. And... Um, Everton in the community um, have, a, have a, an in in a way that the police don't and the local authority mm. and the statutory agencies don't. And the presentations are provided by um, an ex-gang member um, who worked in, a, 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 in the Anfield Youth Service also, an emer a, a doctor in accident and emergency who shows some of the injuries that he's presented with uh, in terms of young people who come in um, in, in the Royal A&E and Aintree A&E up in Liverpool. And we also do um, uh, presentations about building self-esteem and um, with very high-risk individuals, a specific um, intensive sessions uh, with, which last over five, uh, five programmes. Those um, interventions are, are fully supported by the schools uh, and are really, uh, they've all been rated by the children who've experienced them as good and excellent. And I think using that opportunity of trusted um, intermediaries, mm. rather than, in, uh, you cannot arrest your way out of this particular problem, you cannot police your way out of it. You need a combined multi-agency approach 
of, yes, social services and the, and the police dealing with the sort of statutory interventions, but also the community groups, the community cohesion, and the, and the NHS, trusted intermediaries who can get to, the, uh, get, get to create a culture of non-acceptance in our young people and intervene before they potentially become at risk of going off the rails. And we're really proud of that program. There is a great YouTube clip of Calderstone school kids who actually done a big presentation about the knife crime um, experiences that they've had and the anti-knife um, crime work they've done. Look it up on YouTube, it's great. I'll make sure I give it to you for your, your speaker notes, notes afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, so one of the biggest things from uh, my report, one of the things I thought was absolutely brilliant, um, and I think in the US they do a much better job than here, is um, what I called, and a lot of people, it's called credible messengers, and so, um, it kind of hit the nail on the head there, people who have, who've experienced it and who understand the issues. Um, I think there's also the biggest thing that I thought was really important was actually a lot of the outreach workers lived in the communities that they were kind of looking after. So um, Safe Streets, which was in Baltimore, um, they divided up the city basically into, like, into different areas um, and they had youth centres all over the place and people who were involved in gangs, potentially went to prison for it, um, and their family are still a bit dodgy, <laughs> and they're not seen as people who would necessarily go to, you know, you can talk to them about your issues because they're not going to necessarily go straight to the police. Um, and I think having that trusted person in your life is really important. And in, in the UK, I've seen some brilliant work with um, some organisations that work with girls in particular, um, and who can speak to girls and understand girls and know exactly what they're going through, but often they're, they're not funded well. They are competing against much bigger organisations who have much more resource and able to kind of put together bids and win those contracts. So I think there's really, really good work going on, but it's just, it's underfunded, essentially. And I think that's the problem. <laughs> and I think that was going to be a big question from me. Obviously, you're all involved in community work and um, allocating resources. It's obviously a nice way of saying there's not enough money. Um, what have the impact? What has the impact of austerity been on these services, both on a local and national level? Yeah, I mean, if I think it's, I think this is underpins all of this. Mm -hmm. That you know, if, in local authorities, there will never be you know enough money, but the severity of the withdrawal of funds has meant that local authorities. Don't really, I mean, being honest, Paul, no local authority um, in the UK really that's dealing with the public health issue that is uh, youth violence at the moment really has the force of the funding to deal with it properly. And so when we think about those headlines that we see about how bad this has become, you, we, we have to trace this back to the money in the end. And I feel quite sorry for... Um, the police often you know I don't think I would have necessarily said that historically but I do feel very sorry for them at the moment because I think there's lots of people in our police who would listen to what you both are saying about the evidence of it being a public health issue not you know what did you say you can't arrest your way out that of this problem, yes. who would listen to that and think absolutely they know that but do do not have the resources to hand out to other partners or these charitable organisations or others who could actually be those trusted friends and intermediaries to help people out of it. So whatever the funding settlement for our country is to come, I think we have to be really honest about 
what solves this problem. Uh, and, and, and it's not just, you know, classes for young people or whatever. It's making yeah. sure that, that that constant presence of a youth service in a particular area or, or you know, that constant availability of the, the state in people's lives, whatever, guys, it comes, that that is there. And unless we address that, we won't, we won't fix this. And I think, I think what you've, you, one thing that's really frustrating is that local authorities have had their budgets cut so much that actually they're getting to the point where they can only provide statutory services. And what that means is that the threshold for these young people has to be, for them to reach the point where they can actually get help is so high that they have to go through so much trauma. You have to, you know, there are cases of young people, you know, organisations saying, I really, this young girl needs help. And it's like, well, unfortunately, until she is actually sexually abused, we can't do anything. And, you know, that is, that is mind-blowing. And it's so crazy. it's just crazy. And it's, it's really frustrating because when you cut out all of the other support that things like early help services provide, and you're only getting children with such complex needs, that means the number of children in care is going up as well. And so it's, it's more expensive in the long run for local authorities because they're having to deal with the number of children that they need to look after. And there's not enough foster carers, so they're having to go to private organisations, to you know, for-profit organisations to do this. And, and it's just, it's, oh, I can, it's, it's really annoying. <laughs> and, you know, it just... <laughs> local, local authorities are being forced into a, a, a cycle of... Um, uh, false economies yeah. because we are compelled to meet our statutory need and yet in order to do that we we've had 68 percent cut in our government funding and liverpool is one of the most deprived authorities in the whole of england and it means that we always have to end up cutting the non-statutory services which are the preventative services yeah. which end up then resulting in more people crossing the threshold and ending up in the really expensive services of prison of care mm -hmm. of uh, of long-term mental ill health etc and we know that investing in cams we know that investing i'm a, i was a huge fan of the police uh, pcso's and the change in funding there now means that we're losing some of our PCSOs on Merseyside. And yet it's those um, conversations that you have at the end of a community meeting with your community bobby there and the mums in the room, it's not always mums, but mainly mums actually, if they like each other and they can trust each other and the little bit of social um, respect and also um, confidence is built up because they, they know uh, that they can rely on each other, you are far more likely as a police service to get a bit of community intelligence about, do you know what, there's something odd going on in that house, and I've seen odd taxis pulling up at the wrong time, or um, you know, indications of some kind of people trafficking, all that kind of stuff that's very hard to get as hard policing evidence. You get it through community infrastructure. You can even have those conversations as a mum, if with a respected officer, which is, you know, my, 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 my son or my daughter, I think they're going off the rails. Could you come and have a word with them? That kind of soft stuff is phenomenally effective. And most of the sensible police forces, Merseyside Police in particular, say that that kind of community policing approach is way more effective than the hard end stuff, the blue light services stuff. Because that's an example of something that's gone massively wrong. And yet we are being forced to cut back on all of that preventative work. So I say to the Home Office and I say to the government, what you are doing is a massive false economy. Mm. So maybe actually we shouldn't look at just the prison 
service as a separate service and the police service as a separate service and the local authority funding. We ought to be able to look at it in a single budget and try and shift it, do a left shift down to the preventative staff rather than ending up always saying, oh, our priority is to stick people, more people in prison, which is a very expensive people way of making bad people worse. Absolutely, and I think... What Can I make one more Go on. quick point, actually? Is, point. Is, sorry, it's, so it's another kind of uh, uh, a football one, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Oh but, um, but I think what, what uh, Sam was saying about um, how girls' roles in this are often kind of overlooked is really interesting. And actually, when I talk about the, these young uh, footballers who speak very eloquently about their experiences growing up, and actually, sadly, it is... It gets more attention when someone from that background becomes successful and then talks about their background. Otherwise, people are less interested. And, of course, this doesn't just apply to men's football. Ne next month is the, the Women's World Cup. And actually, <laughs> um, and actually, I think we might start seeing more of these stories from the women's footballers involved. There's one specific one, uh, Farrah Williams, who's uh, injured and, and so wasn't picked for the England squad. But her story is is phenomenal. She, um, she had these kind of problems at home and so she was homeless while being an England international. I remember going to an England women's match at Ewood Park in about 2005 or six, and it was at that point the, the attendance record for a women's England game. And she played in that game and that night she didn't have a place to stay. She went and slept in a hostel where she kept all of her belongings in her sleeping bag with her because she knew that they would get stolen. That kind of stuff is, is phenomenal. But the fact that I only know this story because she's a very successful footballer and, and actually, hopefully, some of the sport and football in particular is actually a really good way for, for us to kind of shine a bit of a light on this. And hopefully, I think the, the Women's World Cup this year will get um, a lot more coverage than it's ever done in this country before. And hopefully, it will help us to start recognising, actually, the role of young women and girls in a lot of these communities. Well, and I think one of the things with youth violence is that we all feel quite powerless about it. Mm. Um, so I guess, Sam, Paul, Ali, is there anything that we can do? I mean, when we had the high-profile stabbing in, in a bar in Liverpool um, in 2017-18, the first thing that the mayor did uh, because we're very proud of our nighttime economy. It's very safe overall. And it has, um, you know, it's a huge draw to the city. Do come and visit us, by the way. It's fantastic. Um, the first thing the mayor did was say, right, well, we're not going to stand for this. And we, the council, um, required and paid for um, knife arches in all of our big clubs and paid for, I think it was about 1,000 uh, wands for the, uh, all, all of the door staff who operate in the nighttime economy. And that was a powerful message to the community that we were not powerless as, as an infrastructure. We also um, worked very closely with the police uh, and, but more importantly, the other statutory agencies in building up this, this project about interventions at a young age, the SAM project, and we have a really, we've designed a very enhanced multidisciplinary team to try and tackle those emerging problems as we see coming forward. So we have regular meetings, problem-solving groups between our social work teams, our police officers, our youth service teams, uh, and other agencies in the, and community groups as well to try and deal with problems as they bubble up to build confidence so people can bring those problems to the table. And also, they are far more effective at dealing with, with emerging problems. So we can do stuff. 
we, we can do stuff. And I mean, I agree with everything that Paul said, but, and having already mentioned, you know, coming up is the anniversary of Joe Cox's death. And as part of the kind of work that some of us did to try and remember Joe's life and the values she stood for, um, her family created um, more in common get togethers. And I would say to everybody in this room, you know, go and be a part of your community. You know, if you care about this issue, strong communities can definitely deal with it much better than people who don't necessarily know each other and feel uncertain and insecure in the place that they live. So get involved in a more in common great get together and you know, do it in the name of somebody who never gave up. And, and that way, if we bring stronger communities together, we'll be much better able to deal with this. And I think we should move on the theme. Oh, I was going to say, say a quick one about, on. um, so I think yeah. your question was about people in this room and what they mm. can do. Um, I personally have had more impact as a normal person than I was as a politician, um, but I had way more resources as a politician. Um, and I think there is a duty on all of us to lobby our politicians to actually care about this issue. And that's not just, you know, MPs or, you know, Theresa May or Sajid Javid. It's also your local councillors who hold, who, who know their communities and have a lot of responsibility in able to kind of bring people together. And I think you're right. I think communities, um, strong communities is where, how you tackle issues around community violence. And that also means things like tackling domestic abuse. If the community said that is not acceptable, um, then I think you're more likely to kind of see change. So I think, yeah, that's my... Thanks for that, Sam. <laughs> you me a perfect segue, so it's fine. Um, so we've talked a lot about change, and obviously the theme of our conference is what's next. We're talking about what's next after Brexit, what's next for our country, um, but also a lot of the agenda today is about what's next for young people. So we've got a session on intergenerational fairness, we've got a session about culture and what different people's cultural outlooks means for our society more broadly. And so I'd just like to ask you one more thing, which was if each of you could change one thing for young people, what would it be? Do you want to start, Claire? No. Uh... I would say, I would, I mean, money. Being blunt, young people in this country, they don't get paid enough and there aren't enough resources generally at their disposal. So, Hannah, if I could have one thing, I'd have money for them. I was looking at the front page of the Times this morning. Where, uh, oh. <laughs> the, uh, Has everybody seen the front page of the Times? The today? head teacher of, uh, of, of, of Stowe High School, which uh, is, a, is a private school that has um, fees of £36,000 a year, was complaining that uh, it was too easy for students from uh, state schools to get into Oxbridge. So the thing I'd change is to make life easier for uh, students from private school, probably. <laughs> um, Nobody tweet that. <laughs> uh, my, 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 uh, if I could do one thing, and this is perhaps more achievable, is to have compulsory mindfulness training in all schools to try and give people the result. One of the great um, techniques of public health is that if you don't have enough resource in order to do, deal with the problem externally, that you give the community tools with which to deal with it themselves. And if you can train, we are seeing increased levels of reported poor mental well-being amongst young people, and that's undoubtedly linked to some of the cuts in the, in the children's mental health services. But I would like to have all of our schools delivering mindfulness training to all of our young people. Uh, I think respect. We don't respect young people. There's a reason that cuts go against young people and not older people. Uh, there's a reason we don't listen to children. Um, so I think 
respect. <laughs> Great, thanks a lot. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.